All right. Good morning. Good morning to start. We're, um, the season of Lent is starting this week, and so I thought we would do a little uh, survey of some church history and some what people have said about uh, fasting and Lent. Lent um, is a season of prayer and fasting following Jesus 40 days in the wilderness, and then he got to his death right here. Um, and the fasting, fasting, right, is a very biblical practice. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 9, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. From the Psalms to the prophets to the New Testament, fasting is closely associated with prayer and re- repentance. Israel is commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement. Paul fasts for three days after he sees Jesus on the way to Damascus. David fasts for seven days praying for his child. Daniel fasts for 21 days prior to receiving a vision from God. The apostles pray with prayer. The apostles pray with fasting after appointing elders in each church, and then a forty-day fast we see with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all do a forty-day fast before key moments in their ministry. The season of Lent, on the other hand, is not a biblical thing. It's a it's a liturgical calendar practice put together by the church that also includes Christmas and Easter. Um, well, not really Easter because Easter is the Passover, but, but Christmas. Um, it's been in some way a part of the church's practice from the beginning, but changed quite a bit over church history. I think we'll see a little bit of that in the quotes I put together. Um, the, um, in the, it sounds like from the, in the very early church, it was typical to fast a day or two, maybe longer than that. Uh, there's some difficulty in translating. I ran this in some others where it's not clear if he's saying 40 days or 40 hours. I think the, I think the latter is, is more accepted now. Um, and at some point, at some point, there was a 40-day period of preparation that started for new catechumens who are coming into the church. So prior to their baptism, they're fasting and getting ready to be baptized into the Christian church for 40 days. Um, and, then, um, and then over time, the church created some hard and fast rigid rules around Lent, um, which were loosened over time and then eventually thrown out altogether by the reformers who saw Lent as at that time very superstitious and works-based and discouraged the practice more or less, mostly discouraged the practice. Um, although we'll see that fasting was important to them. But with the end of Lent as universal church practice, we've also seen fasting kind of faded as a universal church practice. So we're going to look at kind of both those ideas together. So um, I've got some quotes I handed out from different church fathers. We're really just going to read through um, some different centuries of what uh, church fathers have said about Lent and fasting, and we can talk about them, and I can offer a tiny bit of context. I didn't do too much background on on uh, each of these, but I can offer a little bit of context, um, and we'll just go and take turns reading. So um, I've got um, Irenaeus to start, who um, one of the church fathers did a lot of, um, of uh, writing. He um, was a student of Polycarp who was a student of uh, the Apostle John. Um, And we'll start with his quote uh, responding to a controversy about fasting prior to Passover, because at their time it wasn't called Easter yet. Uh, Why don't we just start um, over here, we'll just go around. Jonathan, you want to start? Start what? You want to read that quote for us? The whole one? The whole one, yeah. take a water break halfway through? (laughs) You have to. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you can. Too. For the controversy is not merely as regards the day, but also as regards the form itself of the fast. For some consider themselves bound to fast one day, others two days, others still more, while others do so during 40. The diurnal and the nocturnal hours they measure out together as their fasting day. And this variety among the observers of the fast 
had not its origin in our time, but long before in that of our predecessors. And when the blessed Polycarp was sojourning in Rome in the time of Anacetus, although a slight controversy has arisen among them as to certain other points, they were at once well inclined towards each other with regard to the matter in hand, not willing that any quarrel should arise between them upon this head. For neither could Anicus persuade Polycarp to forego the observance in his own way, inasmuch as these things had been always so observed by John, the disciple of our Lord, and by other apostles with whom he had been conversant. Nor, on the other hand, could Polycarp succeed in persuading Anicus to keep the observa obs observance in his way, for he maintained that he was bound to adhere to the usage of the presbyters who preceded him. And in the state of affairs, they had fellowship with one another. Thanks, yes, that's one of the, the first, um, I think it is the first, reference they have to a pre-Easter fasting. Um, and some associate the 40-day um, the period um, with him here, although just in the difficulty of punctuation, I believe he's actually saying 40 hours. Um, but you see he's got, um, he has Polycarp here who says, hey, we should fast because that's what the apostles do. Um, and Anacetus is like, hey, I'm, we shouldn't fast, or at least I'm not going to because I have to follow what the, the elders before me, the practice they instituted, which wasn't fasting them. And, uh, and Irenaeus is insistent that they, that they uh, held peace and communion with each other throughout through the disagreement. Any comments on that before we go to the next century? Two centuries later? Athanasius. All right, let's, uh, Josiah, you want to read uh, Athanasius? The beginning of the fasting of 40 days is of the fifth. Clemenoff. Clemenoff. And when I have said we have first been preferred and pre prepared for those days, we begin the Holy Week of Great. Easter on the 10th, Fermis. Fermis? It's just their, uh, their weird calendar dates. So if it's like their month for March or April. Which in which my beloved brethren should use more prolonged prolong, prolong prayer and fasting and watching, <coughs> that we may be enabled to anoint our lintel with precious blood and to escape the destroyer. Let us rest in thine and them on the fifth of the month of Formithy again. Formithy. For on the evening of the Saturday we hear the angel's message. Why seek ye he lit the living among the dead? He is risen. Immediately afterward the great Sunday receives us. I mean on the sixteenth of the same month, Fareth, Pharmathy, on which the Lord hath, having risen, gave us peace toward our neighbors. When, the, when then he had kept the feast according to his will, let us add from the first day in the Holy Week, the seventh week of Pentecost, and, and has 
And as we then receive the grace of the Spirit, let us all time give thanks to God, through whom the Father be glory and remitted the mission. In the Holy Ghost, forever and ever. Amen. I really like that part where he says, um, he describes fasting and then hearing the angel's message on the evening. Why seek the living among the dead? He is risen. Um, and then being received on the Sunday after that on Easter. Um, so Athanasius is obviously one of the foremost bishops at the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea is, you know, we say the Nicene Creed frequently, and the Trinity is mostly formulated from there. That's also the first reference we have to Lent, the word Lent. Um, not the Germanic word Lent, but the Greek word for Lent, tessera kosta, which means 40 days. It's not fleshed out or anything. They just say, apparently it was a practice already at that time. Um, the line is that they're talking about when synods should be held by the bishops. They said, let these synods be held, the one before Lent, that the pure gift may be offered to God after all bitterness has been put away, and let the second be held about autumn. So they have this, this practice, and, and the documents from the Council of Nicaea is the first time we hear that official word for, the, for that. Um, Horace, yes. do you know when the like, liturgical church calendar started? Do you mention? Is that this? Um, I don't, actually. Um, as far as specifically this practice goes, we're seeing it here. Like These are some of the very few pieces we have about Lent, and we're seeing it kind of formulated as it's going, where for Irenaeus, he doesn't, they don't even call it Easter yet. Um, Athanasius does call it Easter, um, and then by his time, they also have Lent. Uh, so somewhere in the middle there, what were you going to say, Dan? Just going to say that, that uh, you're pegging it just right. It's a development of um, orienting all of life historically as we're coming into pagan nations. The church begins to see the necessity of um, establishing routines and seasons and how it, how it really catechizes. Because you, you think about it like we don't really understand paganism in the raw. But those early church fathers, that's what they were experiencing. So you have to take and think about reorienting all of life. So it's about this time. If you're interested, I have a book upstairs on the origins of it as well. So would maybe this practice have, have been a pagan practice, fasting? And what about, yeah, Easter was, was supposedly a pagan uh, name of some that's right but it's just like today and and the gay community taking the uh the calendars of uh i mean taking the rainbow and saying the prayers they can they can uh steal things but really it's all god's creation being restored so I, I wouldn't become too concerned about uh, things like that when you hear it. I mean, if you want to get in the weeds, we can do that from time to time. Yeah, we could we could talk more about that. I think that'd be an interesting conversation. But I do want to get. Well, what about the Jewish calendar? You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, the Jewish calendar continues to today. I mean, they they are still numbering days, and and their calendar continues. What What's your question, Jean? Uh, we're just saying, like, uh, the Jewish people. I mean. Christ was a Jew. Yeah. Christ came out from the Jews. The Jews had practices, uh, sacrifices, 
Jesus being the son of God, being part of the, being God is one of them. Yeah. yeah. So that would have been, you know, this is, this is, this is absolute no-no for the Jews. You know, they oh, cannot sure. recognize yeah. Jesus as the one mediator between God and man, the man yeah. Christ Jesus. And so, <coughs> uh, how, you know, when we think, we came out of Judaism. Right. Yeah. And the Let's church, they had Right. Let's keep going to Augustine. Um, I think there's there's more to say on that, but let's only keep moving through here. Um, Augustine is the first in the fifth century. He's the first, um, that at least I found, who really starts formulating a little bit of a theology around um, Lent and fasting. So um, who's uh, who's next in our reading? Um, you want to read? Jeremiah, you want to read? Got it. Did you pass yeah, out the on? documents, though? Yes. Yeah, why don't you go read? Why don't you read the first one? We'll okay. read the second one. It ends on the next. Yeah, it, oh, ends, right. it ends right there. We'll have uh, Joel go on the next one. Today we enter upon the observance of Lent, the season now presented to us in the passage of the liturgical year. An appropriately solemn sermon is due so that the word of God brought to you through my ministry may sustain you in spirit while you fast in body, and so that the inner man, thus refreshed by suitable food, may be able to accomplish and to preserve courageously in the discipline of the outer man. For to my servant of devotion, it seems fitting that we who are about to honor the passion of our crucified Lord in the very near future uh, should fashion for ourselves a cross of the bodily of the bodily pleasures in need of restraint, as the apostle says, and they who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with the passions and desires. Helene, you want to keep reading the next... Uh Next one. Yeah. This is from a different sermon in his same series of he's preaching through Lent. Let us first, let us fast, humbling our souls as the day draws near on which the, teach, the teacher of humility humbled himself, becoming obedient even to death on the cross. Let us imitate his cross, fasting, fastening it to our passions, subdued by the nails of absence, let us chasten our body, subjecting it to obedience, and let us, unless we slip into it, pleasures through our undisciplined flesh, let us, in taming it sometimes, withdraw illicit pleasures, pleasures, self-indulgence, and drunkenness, ought to be shunned on other days throughout the season, however, even legitimate eating is to be checked. Adultery and fornication must also be abhorred and avoided. But on these days, special restraint must be practiced, even by married persons. The flesh, which has been accustomed to restraint regarding to its own satisfaction, will readily submit to you when there is question of clinging to other, to another's goods. Is that quote? Is that quote clear to everybody? What are saying there? I don't wanna. Wanna. Comment on the what, you, what the idea is. Say you gotta fast in more ways than one. Say again. Say I I take that as he you have to fast in more ways than one. Explain that. Wait, it's 
it's kind of like abstaining from like all like but I guess pleasures or needs that, that you know you have in order to concentrate on uh, on God and uh, reverence and praise. Yeah. Yeah, I was a little confused by the last line about claims of those goods, but he's um, he's saying um, at all times of the year we need to we need to withdraw from sin, right? And he's saying, but we can train the body to do that by in this period Lent, in this example, um, withdrawing from good things as well. Uh, so he's saying um, um, subjecting our body to obedience. Um, Whereas he's like, the flesh which has been accustomed to restraint in regard to satisfying its, its own satisfaction will readily submit to you when there's a question of, and I think it's, it's sort of like stealing, sort of like sin, when there's a question of clinging to others' goods, um, they'll readily submit to you. Um, the, um, so like I said in the, in the previous bottle, teaching our body restraint, and uh, as he quotes Galatians, crucifying our flesh with its passions and desires. So you start to see the idea form of um, here the I don't, I don't know if the idea form I, probably the other the other um, previous writers had the exact same idea in mind, but this is you first see him at least lay it out um, where you have fasting is withdrawing from things that are good um, to train our body um, and and staying away from things that are bad. That was Augustine. That was Augustine. Yeah. It's interesting seeing uh, making a distinction between. A lot of the Gnostic practices, a lot of the those people, ascetics, and people who would who saw the body as as that all the time, yeah. and that he's making that distinction that these things are good, but it's okay to refrain from them at certain mm. periods of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Jen brought up some really good points here. You know, Platonism, Gnosticism created order kind of being a bad thing, the rational, the interior being the, the more desirable things. I think the Christian take has to be in, in fasting is understanding that um, God has given us the call to take dominion, which includes our own self and our own passions. doesn't mean this is bad, right? It's about um, restraining it um, to to show that you have dominion over it before the Lord. You're giving those things for the Lord, but you're, you're, you're striving to take dominion of your person and your body. Yeah. So I'm going to just summarize a couple of these next quotes for time. Um, so next we have Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, the Summa Theologica. I don't think this is from the Summa Theologica. It's from some meditations he wrote during Lent. Um, but he distinguishes between a, um, what does he call it, a natural law to fast, where he says um, any person, any Christian, needs to fast for their own reasons and knows why they need to fast for their own reasons, and then what he calls ecclesiastical fasting, which is times fixed by the church for fasting, and which is Lent. And he starts, um, he starts laying out some of the rules around this. Um, and we're going to see, I, I don't have a lot of the history here, but Lent becomes, uh, it's required by law, if it's required to do certain things, they start making laws about what time you have to eat, you're allowed to start eating in the evening, what foods you're allowed to have prior to that, the days. Um, and so as Martin Luther comes along, Lent's become a very superstitious, very rigid, very legalistic practice. 
and um, we're going to see the reformers now are um, are not about that. Um, why don't we? Um, do you want to read? Do you want to read the start with the um, the first Martin Luther quote? Although, as I have said, inwardly and according to the Spirit, a man is amply enough justified by faith having all that he requires to have, except that this very faith and abundance ought to increase from day to day, even till the future life. Still be, still he remains in this mortal flesh upon earth in which it is necessary that he should rule his own body and have dealings with men. Here then works begin. Here he must not take this ease. Here he must give heed to exercise his body by fasting, watching, labor, and other moderate discipline, so that, one, it may be subdued by the Spirit, and two, obey and conform him to the inner man and faith, and three, not rebel against them nor hinder them, as, it, as is its nature to do if it is not kept under control. Uh, um, I'm going to summarize the next two. Um, he talks about St. Paul, after he's taught the Roman faith, begins in 12.1 to teach many good works, exhorting them to present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which would be their spiritual service. This is rendered to God and that the body is mortified by fasting, watching and labors, which is done by Anna. All the saints will have done this. And he goes on, quotes 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, lest by any means, after that I have preached to others, I myself should be rejected. Um, and then he goes on to talk about Lent, uh, specifically. So he's talking about really fasting in those first two sections. In the last quote, um, he is preaching through Lent, and Lutherans are, Lutherans are one of the Reformed traditions that definitely hold, keep, still keep Lent. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't throw it out uh, as much as Calvin and some of the others did. Um, he said, uh, Gospels read to the beginning of Lent, that we may rightly observe Lent, which has become a mere mockery. First, because no one can follow the example of fasting 40 days and nights. Second, Lent's become a mockery because our fasting is a perversion and an institution of man, because mm -hmm. uh, Christ doesn't require it. Um, and worst of all is that we've adopted and practiced fasting as a good work, not to bring our flesh into subjection, but as a meritorious work before God to atone for our sins and obtain grace. And it is this that has made our fasting a stench and so blasphemous and shameful, so that no drinking and eating, no gluttony and drunkenness could have been as bad and foul. It would have been better had people been drunk day and night than to fast thus. I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to keep on going a little bit for time here. Um, but, Yeah, what is the... Um, yeah, that was the last paragraph of Luther say, uh, that was said. Yeah, he starts in the, in the first sentence. Man is amply enough justified by faith. Um, there's no justification going on through fasting and watchings and labors, but there is a, 
there's a purpose there. So we're going to say it from Calvin, too. I'm going to keep going on to Calvin. Um, so I pulled out three sections from the Institute of Christian Religion. One where he's talking about fasting, one where he's talking against Lent, and one where he's talking about, about fasting again. So he says, holy and lawful fasting has three objectives. We use it either to weaken and subdue the flesh, that it may not act wantonly, or that we may be better prepared for prayers and holy meditations, or that it may be a testimony of our self-abasement before God when we wish to confess our guilt before him. And then going on, the next, uh, the, not the next chapter, but a little bit further. For we must always take a special precaution lest any superstition creep in, as has previously happened to the great harm of the church. It would be much more satisfactory if fasting were not practiced at all, and diligently observed at, and at the same time corrupted with false and pernicious opinions. Um, <clears throat> and I we can probably skip the last one. It's interesting. He, um, he, while he's throwing, he throws out Lent pretty firmly. Um, he's very specific that um, it is the purpose of the church and the purpose of the pastor and elders to call for public fasts um, for many different occasions for the church. So he's very big on the church fasting together, just not for a for seasons particular to them and their needs. And he names a couple here. War, pestilence, famine, choosing a new pastor, controversy. He names all these different occasions where it would be good for the church, elders of the church to call a public fast and have a fast. But Calvin's pretty firm on um, on not liking Lent. Um, it's a good verse that he, um, that he has there, too. That last part oh, sorry, yeah. About oh, yes, that's a good point. Yeah, you want to read that? Is that they should always urge what Joel teaches that they are to rend their hearts and not their garments. Joel 2.13. Yeah. yeah, that is good. So let's read. Um, I got. We got two more quotes left. And let let uh, who wants to read the? Who wants to read John Wesley? Take like volunteers this time. All right, Marco. Who wants to read C.S. Lewis? All right. <laughs> All right, Marco. Go ahead and read John Wesley for us. <laughs> Thoughts about that uh, about that passage hit pretty hard. I felt like um, 
felt like I'd let Dan talk about, uh, give him some time at the end, talk about what we're doing and talk about Lent as a practice. Um, but I felt like at the end of this, you could, I'm not, you could walk away thinking, yeah, it's good we don't, it's good Lent's not a universal church practice anymore, or oh man, Lent should be a universal church practice anymore. I was hoping you couldn't walk away from this and think, man, we shouldn't be fasting. Um, that is definitely in the, in the biblical scriptural practice that is, happens from Genesis to Revelation. Um, Lent is a seasonal thing that, I mean, the performers had good reasons for throwing it out. Maybe some of these other early church fathers had good reasons for having it. And, and maybe there's a connection between the fact that we don't really celebrate Lent as a universal church, the fact that we don't really practice fasting anymore as a universal church. Um, but and maybe there's not though. But the fasting is the is I think the key thing here, and Lent I think is a is a, another a separate conversation in some ways. Um, let's read our last quote, and then I'm going to let Dan talk about. Um, well, if there's besides any other questions, let Dan talk. Um, go ahead. Everyone knows that fasting is a different experience from missing your dinner by accident or through poverty. Fasting asserts the will against the appetite. The reward being self-mastery and the, and the danger of pride. Involuntary hunger subjects appetite and will together to the divine will, furnishing occasion for submission and exposing us to the danger of rebellion. But the redemption, or the redemptive effort of suffering lies chiefly in its tendency to reduce the rebel will. Aesthetic practices which in themselves strengthen the will are only useful insofar as they enable the will to put its own house, the passions, in order as a preparation for offering the whole man to God. They are necessary as a means, as an end, <coughs> abominable for in substituting will for appetite, and, they, and their stopping they will merely exchange the animal self for the diabolical self. <clears throat> any um, last questions or comments on any of those passages? Or in general? I'm going to come up to him talk about what we're, what we're doing. So just a couple comments uh, on... Uh, Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Please. I also included a link at the bottom that I found really nice from the C.S. Lewis Institute that kind of talks about a little bit of the history of fasting, as some scripture on fasting, and talks about some practical ideas around fasting. So that link's on the bottom of the type and the handout. So, uh, yeah. uh, Hans, can you give me your mic? Oh, sorry, yeah. So I, I did read that article that's uh, associated with the link there. I'll tell you, uh, very helpful. The one thing I was a little unsure about, about three-quarters through, it's fairly lengthy, so take some time, set aside some time so you can reflect on the article. But they clarified the one concern I had towards the bottom, so um, I'm, I'm pleased at that. Um, one thing, just real quick here, you have to bear in mind, um, part of fasting and, and, and putting ourselves in submission and taking uh, dominion over ourselves um, is about maturity, right? It's, it's sort of like, you know, as we get older, we know we shouldn't eat the whole bag of Oreos, right? <laughs> so you say, okay, I'm going to eat two, and you just take two, and you put it back in the cupboard. Um, and then you still have to restrain yourself from going back to the cupboard, of course. But 
Um, the history of the church is a history of maturity. So what do we do? We go from one side and we got all these problems over here and so we swing real hard over to this side and that's, that's, what, you, that's what you have, this constant battle of maturity of how do we go, how can we feast and then fast. And I just want to also make sure that we make the connection that fasting ought to be associated with prayer. Obviously, you're fasting, you're doing that throughout the whole day. And obviously, if you're, you're folding laundry, changing babies, going to work, doing all those different things, you, you can't physically pray all the time. But you want to make, I, I would want those things to be associated. Otherwise, you're buffeting yourself to what end, right? Because part of it is to buffet ourselves, to restrain ourselves, um, so that we can pray um, and, and uh, you know, focus in on God a little more so that when we hear those, feel those hunger pangs, we go, Lord, your will be done. Help me to hear. So remember those, those go together. It's important that we uh, contrast joy to repentance. Um, to understand um, the gravity of our sinfulness. And then that causes us to then bring in and have true gratitude, which actually shifts the liturgy of our life. That is the pattern of our life, right? If we recognize the gravity of our sin, really, and, and so we, we come to with a penitent heart before God, and then we believe and trust God's faithful promises to forgive us, that is that, that ought to be joy that shifts how we practice our daily life. Um, so um, as a church, I think this may be the first time we've done, at least since I've been here, a uh, Ash Wednesday service. Um, we won't be doing ashes. Um, I think that it's unhelpful to put the big cross on your head and walk around the rest of the day with that. I think that's contrary to the way the scriptures, even though we're doing ours in the evening. Um, but... but you know, that's contrary to what the scriptures say where Jesus says, don't let people know that you're fasting, that you're, right? That's an outward thing. Um, and so we should be very cautious with that. And of course, I'm gracious to my brothers that do that. You know, I'm not, I'm just telling you what, what our thoughts are here. The, the, it's it's going to be no more than 30 minutes. There'll be a liturgy that will respond, we'll sing, I'll give a short homily. And the whole point is to kind of take us from uh, this this place where we are going through epiphany and we're rejoicing in the illumination of knowing who God is, and we and we understand, um, you know, Christ's death and suffering, and we're penitent. And so I want to say, you fast if you choose, but not on the Lord's day. Okay, on the Lord's day, that's a day where we rejoice in the great mercies and grace of God. It's a day of feasting. Now, if if we if, if we decide there's some crisis and the elders decide to call a fast, that might be different. But, I, you know, in, in most cases, what we want to do, we don't want to fall in the ditch. We're going for maturity. And part of the maturity is the grace of God in all things, right? We are so rejoicing in God's great mercies and grace that the Lord's day we come before him. He's renewing his covenant with us. We bring rags in our sin and he forgives us, transforms us, brings us to his table of peace and sends us out to do his work. That is a time of feasting and rejoicing. And so we want to keep that in, in mind.
Yes, sir. Can I answer that? Yes. Um, earlier, but the church calendar being formulated, you just talked about not feasting on Sunday, not fasting on Sundays. That's only one dimension was that I realized the Western church calendar was specifically formulated such that you can get 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter without fasting on Sunday. Right. If you take out, if you take the Sundays out, you actually get 40 days. And that goes really far back. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's a, yes, that's a, a long-term practice. And, and again, there may be a time, especially if you're self-fasting, that, but, but I want you to, because what, what is happening when we come here every week, we are being reoriented. We've, we've, we've sinned, even, even our, our best works are not in the perfect will of God. And God is coming in, restoring us, renewing his covenant promises to us, rearranging us, transforming us in all these ways. It's, it's setting us so that the next six days we are um, in, in a better spot, in a place to be more faithful and, and rejoicing in his great grace and providence. So um, I, I hope to have uh, a little bit of sackcloth and uh, I'll have some ashes and we're going to do a little thing with the kids afterwards for them to take home a little scrap of sackcloth and ashes for them to see um, and uh, just be thinking about how repentance is life-changing it alters you um, and and we you know just something visible to remind them of, of the season of Lent any questions okay well thank you for your time this morning um, let's uh, close out with prayer our God and our Father we thank you for this day we thank you for your mercy and grace we thank you for all you've given us, including our bodies. May we submit all of ourselves to you. And we thank you, O oh Lord, for your great grace and promises to us. Please prepare our hearts for worship and the renewal of your covenant promises to us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.